Welcome to Funny They Don't Look Jewish, where Judaism appears in the panels. Our purpose is to find characters, stories, and issues of comics that explore explicitly Jewish content. I'm Henry Bernstein. I'm Brandon Bernstein. No, no relation. relation. Hey, Henry. It's so good to see you, like, sooner than usual, but yeah. from so far away now. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of hard to top the experience of the last one, having you sitting right next to me. But yeah, I think it's, I, it's good. There was a really good energy that we were feeding off with each other. It was like <laughs> the recording process was singing, you know? It was just yes. so quick the whole time. Yeah, so we're back on Zoom, which is fine, but it's really it is really fine to be talking about comic books again. Always a, a love and a pleasure. I feel like every time we do an episode, especially after a break, I get reinvigorated and excited <laughs> to dive into the world of Judaism and comic books and where they intersect, which is just, you know, all the um all the proof I need to know that this is something that we should be doing because it always just gets me excited. Right. Right. Because we like comic books and we like Judaism. We we like comic books. Comic books are great. We like <laughs> Judaism. Judaism is great. Yeah. We quote from G Pete. G Pete is great. <laughs> Exactly. Well, it's cool that we'll be continuing a little bit more with Seraph. This kind of, he kind of came at, out of nowhere a little bit and hit us last time with, until this point, the greatest moment in explicitly Jewish comic book content. So I'm, I'm like excited that we've got a little bit more of him. Yeah. That being, I would imagine the uh, Kol Nidrit Yom Kippur after crying for repentance. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a pretty, it's a pretty high bar when it comes to Jewish content going forward. We're not going to surpass it this episode. At I least, don't think so. But... No. <laughs> Set your expectations low, everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be actually, you really should because it's not as bad as we're making it out to be. Right. It's all perfectly fine, good Jewish content. And I will say, as we get started again, Henry, there's just something so fun about the way Seraph becomes this recurring backup character. Now, I did not go on a reading binge of the Super Friends comics, nor did I go on a listening binge to your friend's podcast catching up on all of them. But my understanding, although I cannot verify it, is basically every issue had a backup story starring one of the lesser known members of that sort of wider um, worldwide league. So that's where you're going to yeah. get your, your samurais and probably your cyborgs from back in this day and things like that. Every one of these issues of Super Friends seems to have a backup starring a different character. Maybe it would be Samurai. Maybe it would be Cyborg. Um, maybe it would even be Aquaman, but I think he's too main cast. But we see that the authors like to go back to Seraph quite a few times because um, we're actually going to get two more. And, and on the one hand, maybe that's not too many issues, but this is now going to be three issues total in which Seraph stars in a backup story. And it really feels like they're kind of building him as a character. Yeah. I mean, one thing that was funny was when I, right after I appeared on for all mankind talking about Seraph a few weeks later, Rob Kelly wrote to me and he's like, we just covered Seraph again. He showed up in a backup issue again. And that's what we're going to cover today. So like even kind of in real time, 30 years after it happened, it was like, oh, he showed up again. Great. They yeah, really like yeah. him. 
<laughs> right. It's it's sort of like when whenever an author, you know, when a, a writer starts on a book and they have their creator-owned characters that they're just really in love with, and so that character always shows up. Right. And then as soon as the next writer comes in, it's like, eh, we don't care. You know, like uh, like Grant Morrison brought in Phantom X and used him a lot in the X-Men, and then the next, like, Phantom X did not appear again for like a decade, it feels <laughs> like, because no one had anything to do with them. And then also they got popular again, and like, certain characters are just beloved by certain authors, and clearly um, E. Nelson Bridwell and, as we're going to find out soon, Bob Oxner right. had a bit of a love for the the Israeli superhuman that reminds us He's not as strong as Hercules. He's as strong as Samson. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, we're looking at Super Friends number 41, December 1980. Dry Earth, Stolen Waters. Written and penciled by Bob Oxner. Colored by Jerry Serpy. Lettered by John Costanza. And edited by Julius Schwartz. Is it just me? Or does Dry Earth, Stolen Waters sound like it could be the name of a Grateful Dead tune? <laughs> totally totally yeah all right well let's dive in then so this is this is seraph's second backup story but his fourth appearance i suppose based on what we've been looking at in the comics so seraph chaim levon once again is in israel and our narrative caption lets us know in the desolate wastes bordering the Red Sea, interests try to stop the greening of the desert. And indeed, this is a story about, quote-unquote, the blooming of the desert, as Chaim, in his role as an educator, has taken a group of school children, not, as we'll find out later in the issue, the Israeli school children, but rather a group of visiting American school children. Chaim is a tour guide, more or less, as we'll discover in the next issue also. And Henry, now that I'm thinking of Chaim as a tour guide, like someone that you might get on your birthright trip or just anytime you go, I like, I actually really love the idea of this Israeli superhero who, like, in his civilian identity, is just giving all these American Jewish visitors tours of Israel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like a perfect side hustle. There's a, I know, I, I've known many israelis who are like educators slash tour guides over the years it's absolutely <laughs> so i'm taking this group of kids to the most exciting spot in all of israel a desalination plant <laughs> uh, which is meant to irrigate the desert um and as i hinted at earlier it's really in line with like this story that you would always hear of how Israelis would like uh, make the desert bloom and would sort of take the negative desert and, and really make it irrigable. As they arrive, unfortunately, they are told that their trip has been canceled by a guy who I can only describe as like the sketchiest dude ever. Like every <laughs> visual clue that I have, my spider sense is tingling to cross universes when I see this guy. Like, do you want to describe him for our listeners? He, yeah. He sort of looks like, Mike D when Mike D had the big fro in like 2005 or so, but he's got, he just like has this big brown fro, really creepy sunglasses. And yeah, he just looks like a sketchy dude. <laughs> he looks like he is a member of the foot clan who just walked out of the pages of an old black and white Eastman and Laird Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's got that yeah. sort of like eighties, like, yeah. Not necessarily punk, but like, oh, uh, like sketchy dude. Sketchy guy. Yeah. So Chaim 
his spider senses were also tingling as he realizes something's up. So um, he wants to ask the other people working at the irrigation at the desalination plant what's going on. He doesn't want to make the children worry. So he calls out in Hebrew because none of these American kids know any Hebrew. And so he calls out, Lama hasheket, efokulam, which of course means, why so quiet? Where is everybody? <laughs> and correct me if I'm wrong, there's a like little caption translating it for everybody. Which yeah, is, like, yeah. So it says, cool why the silence? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So much cooler than what I'm used to. I feel like by the time I was reading comics, the contemporary ones when I was a child, they were much more the you would see sort of like brackets or I guess like yes. the carrots, the greater than less than on either side. And it would just yes. like translated from whatever language and it was exactly. just pure English. Yeah. Yeah. I, I sometimes like it it's like a fictional language. Like, you know, I, I right, you know, sure. I would re- be reading comics or like translated from Kryptonian or, or yeah, like yeah. a made up country, like, uh, you know, like DC like or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. but sometimes, yeah, it's just, you know, translated from, whatever so it's it's yeah. cool to see I, I had the same thought it was cool to see actually hebrew written out uh phonetically yeah yeah it's written out transliterated i was gonna say my my least favorite is probably when a character is speaking an alien language and they decide to depict it in the alien alphabet so like you literally can't read it and i'm like right. i guess that's cool but i don't even know how to imagine what this sounds like, like <laughs> Anyway, time is asked, where is everybody? And we get a response from the tower in a kind of metallic voice that just, Kol Beseder, Kol Beseder. <laughs> so letting us know everything is fine. But Henry, I suspect that not everything is fine. Oh no, it, it is a superhero comic after all. Indeed. So Seraph consults the wisdom of Solomon's ring. He determines that there's this giant water tower, and he realizes, giant? It's like Goliath. (laughs) So he decides to be just like David, and he creates a slingshot um, to take down the water tower, which I guess is cool, right? Like um, That story, for anyone who's interested, is in 1 Samuel 17. What were we going to say, Henry? Is Seraph just like the the superhero of mixing metaphors like he's just it's just like every jewish or every biblical thing just, he's gonna mix them all up yeah he's like um were you a fan of community henry did you watch that yeah. show yeah do you remember the episode where um uh where chevy chase's character where pierce just constantly works in references to um having sex with eartha kit on an airplane bathroom (laughs) yeah yeah, it's like no matter what they said he's like what it came up organic that feels (laughs) like seraph is like no matter what happens he's like i have a biblical story related to this right 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 Um, he's sort of in like youth pastor mode yeah totally (laughs) right which just to me kind of feels like oh yeah that's how you know that this is a all of his references are technically jewish but also super limited to tanakh it's, i was i was thinking that too i was thinking in the last episode also that like all of his references are biblical there's not you know there's i know we we mentioned uh talmud gitin in the last episode but there's there's nothing really rabbinic or in it at all <laughs> yeah now Nothing. If I were my mind at the end, right? There's, there's nothing. It, it, it's as though 
there was the Tanakh and then there was Israel and that's it. And so if I were to sort of like no prize explain this and, and attribute meaning that I'm sure is not intended there, I would say, oh, maybe that's sort of fitting for this Israeli character along with the Israeli narrative of like the diaspora and the rabbinic period was really like sort of an irregularity, an abnormality, a way of putting the Jews outside of the place they were always meant to be. Like there was that sort of thrust in Zionist history, right? Where it's sort of like we were in our land, we were kicked out, and now we're back and everything that happened from 70 CE to 1948 or like to the years building up to that is like irrelevant and not important, right? Like all we care about is Jews in their land. Like I could make that argument. I don't yeah. really want to, but right. say it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the rabbinic period literally did happen there also. So this is you know, true. Right? Under Roman so, rule, but it was there. <laughs> yeah. Give me my Kabbalah. Give me my spot yeah. <laughs> mystics. Bring in Ramban. <laughs> well, the biblical references just keep coming, Henry, because on page four, there's this like electrical fence and Seraph leaps over it by using the staff of Moses and it literally transforms into like a pole vault, right? Like it's a vaulting pole and he pole vaults over the fence. He has to make sure to let us know the staff of Moses does this. Right. Um, and on page Which is five, the only reason we're mentioning it here. It's not just that we thought it was a cool trick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we are not just we are not just fans of Seraph's athleticism. <laughs> like, man, he could compete in the Olympics, bring right. home gold for arts. <laughs> so on page five, that sketchy student reveals that he is indeed a saboteur. I he's there to sell secrets to destroy fresh water. And, and kick he's all out of fresh water. <laughs> he is holding he does kind of look like they live ask the way he's holding that machine gun a little roddy piper like yeah <laughs> but now oh god now it's like he's wearing the sunglasses and he's turning against jews and israelis so does that mean he's buying into that anti-semitic conspiracy of like the jews are these alien lizard people oh yeah who um, knows <laughs> who knows so seraph is horribly offended by this because he wants to make sure um, that the people working at the desalination plant can keep bringing, quote, new life to an ancient land. Um, he's really hitting those bits hard over and over again. On page six, we get to like the highlight of the action, the sort of the climax of the action. All the other bad guys have taken those American school children hostage and they're threatening to kill the children if Seraf stops the bomb that's going to destroy the desalination plant. What a classic hero's dilemma we have here, Henry. <laughs> right? It's like, it's taking me back to the ending of Spider-Man where, you know, Green Goblin's yeah. like, you must choose the Muslim children yeah. or Mary Jane. Right? Who are you going to save? You're going to stop the bomb or you're going to save these kids? Right. Um, and of course, like any good hero, Seraf decides he's going to do both. So he prays. O holy one who stopped the sun at Gibeon and halted the moon in the valley of Eichelon to save lives once again, stop the flow of time. You may be asking yourself to save lives again. What do you mean, <laughs> stop the flow of time? So this is uh, another Tanakh biblical reference to Joshua 10, 12, as Joshua is leading the Israelites in their conquest of the land. Gibeon is a large city that has made peace with the Israelites, and so five Amorite kings join together to march on Gibeon and attack and show them what they think of it. And so Joshua is leading the Israelite army, and in verse 12 of Joshua 10, he says, Stand still, O son, at Gibeon. O moon in the valley of Eichelon. So 
literally basically the text that gets brought over. Um, and sure enough, um, it's one of those uh, uh, miracles of the of Tanakh. Uh, the sun and the moon stay still, basically like time halts. And so the Israeli army uh, is, is successful. And so too, it's going to happen here. It's just, I found it funny because it's like the author is clearly cherry picking moments of Tanakh to be able to bring in as like cool things Seraph can do. Um, but he's not really paying much attention to wider context because just two verses later in verse 14, the Tanakh lets us know, neither before nor since has there ever been such a day when the Lord acted on words spoken <laughs> by a man. It's like it's literally saying this yeah. was a one-time miracle and will never happen again. <laughs> and then Bob Oxner comes in and is like, Yeah, 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 hold my beer. It's gonna happen again. <laughs> Seraph, Seraph is the exception to this. Right. Um, all right. Fine. Did he, Brandon? So, did did you know this reference before you saw it here? Like, how well do you do, are you well versed in Joshua? I am not. I that's one. I think I learned. We learned it. We learned Joshua my freshman year of high school. Maybe I don't know. Maybe sixth grade. I don't remember one year, and so I don't remember anything from it. Yeah. Anyone who who views me as a encyclopedic source of wisdom from the Jewish tradition, just like. Don't listen for 10 seconds or so. Yeah, no, I am not super uh, familiar. Like, it's funny doing this. There's a process. I, I forget the name of it, but just like there's the um, uh, Dafyomi, where you can over yeah. seven and a half years learn Talmud, um, there is a process of, it's it's basically like Parakyomi or something yeah. like that. Chapter yeah, a day. Right? Yeah, where you yeah. get to basically go through and learn all of Nach, right? Because it's like you get the Torah just by going to right. Shul, but you're able to get all of Nach. I've long thought about doing that because oh. like, I really would love a more intentional reading of the entirety of like Judges and Joshua and mm -hmm. even like Samuel and Kings. Like it'd really be useful to go in there more because I know like highlights from all of them, but I have not studied any of them entirely in depth. Right. So yeah, this was, I mean, I think uh, I think this is it's cited right within the book. It tells you yeah. this is from Joshua ten, so that yeah. made it easy to do my research uh, right. with a Roman yeah. numeral ten. Even it was very official, right? Very very official in this, this sort of way. That's funny. Uh, maybe it's not a ten. Maybe it's from Joshua X. <laughs> Anyway, the saboteurs start shooting at the children just as Seraph is saying his prayer. Time stops. And Seraph is able to disarm the bomb to throw the mantle of Elijah over the kids. Time resumes. And of course, the bullets bounce off the mantle because Elijah's mantle is bulletproof. Why wouldn't it be? <laughs> Which uh, chapter of Nach was that where Elijah, the prophet's mantle, stops this, bullets? <laughs> this is a dangerous path, Henry. <laughs> so Seraph then says to them, Behold, the staff of Moses chastises, especially those who would rob the desert of fresh water. Chaim, we get it, man. We, we understand. <laughs> you are you are pro-irrigating this desert. It has come through. Um, on page eight, as Chaim is wrapping everything up, he uh, takes a moment to quote the Bible, and it does literally say the Bible, which... Fine, he would call it the Tanakh, surely, but fine, quotes the Bible. And so he quotes from the book of Proverbs, the words that give us our, our title of this story. Stolen waters are sweet, ellipses, but the way of transgressors is hard. What's really weird about this quote is you're like, oh, maybe he's skipping like a verse in between. Maybe he's taking the beginning of the verse and the end. No, um, he is quoting 
Proverbs 9.17, stolen waters are sweet. And then jumping to Proverbs 13.15, but the way of transgressors is hard. I don't think you can do an ellipses and then skip forward four chapters of time. <laughs> I mean, that Just is the me. definition of cherry picking versus right. like that is... <laughs> Like, I guess you found them in conversation. It's just wild because like in 916, right? It says like right after it says that stolen waters are sweet, it says the chasar lev, the omralo, to one lacking sense, it'll say to them, like the wider context is to those devoid of sense, she, meaning like wisdom or, or, or temptation, says that stolen waters are sweet and bread eaten furtively is tasty. So like in the context of the verse itself, it's already saying no one really thinks this. Like only fools believe that stolen waters are sweet. Mm-hmm. But he kept it to be able, right, like Oxner kept it to make the flip to the way of transgressors is hard, that being uh, Proverbs 13, 15. And um yeah, I was going to go deep into some stuff there, but it's really not so relevant. So I'm going to skip okay. over it. Um, if people are interested in learning things about the word hard and where it got translated from, um, from Proverbs 1315, at me. I'll, I'll tell you outside of this podcast. So afterwards, Kimes with the kids. Uh, we may recall he doesn't really care about having a secret identity, so they're probably aware that he's Seraph, or, but they don't seem phased by it. Um, but they ask, how could time have stopped without throwing the Earth off its orbit? Right? Was this a miracle? And I think this is probably our favorite part of the issue, Henry. Yeah. What does Chaim say in response to these kids asking if it was a miracle? Kids, almost 2,000 years ago, a Jewish historian said, on the matter of miracles, everyone is welcome to his own opinion. So what do you think? Love it. Love that <laughs> open, discursive, didactic education. So as the the citation lets us know, as the editor's note lets lets us know, Chaim is quoting Josephus, the Jewish historian. In his antiquities, he had this quote. I'm sure you can Google it and see it all sorts of places on the matter of miracles. Everyone isn't welcome to their own opinion. But that that's the end of the issue. And so we get like some Jewish history, right? Which also feels like again feels very Christian when the only Jewish things you're quoting are like. Tanakh and Josephus. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's just keep going. What's our next issue, Henry? We are staying in the cartoon universe of Super Friends, number 46, April 1981, Echo of Evil, written and penciled by Bob Oxner, colored by Jerry Serpy, lettered by John Costanza, edited by Julius Schwartz. I'm going to describe this first page and then... And then tell a little quick thing, which is we have a caption letting us know like a ship of stone. The great rock fortress soars 1,300 feet above the eastern Judean desert. And we see that we are at Masada. (laughs) Chaim is at Masada to give a tour. Once again, he's a great tour guide. To Rivka, you may remember Rivka from the Day of Atonement, and her American cousin... Rivka, who is uh, thigh or or posterior Chaim lifted up over his head. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. that Rivka. The the one that Seraph is probably uh, hooking up with on the regular. And her American cousin, Wendy, who also, you know, very well might have a crush on Chaim. Who knows? They're all getting along splendidly. But so what's wild about this, Henry, is we're basically getting an issue that dives deep into the history of Masada. And if you don't know the history of Masada, um, 
you'll learn it shortly because we're going to share it with you via this <laughs> issue. Um, but if you've ever been on an organized trip to Israel, you know that almost every birthright group, almost all the tour groups will go at some point to Masada, right? Like you will climb Masada, the the sunrise hike, right? The hike to climb up and see the sunrise at Masada is sort of like a, a, a known tourist thing to do. So what's crazy about this is that about four months ago, in early January, um, I was leading a birthright trip. I was in Israel when you first messaged me, Henry, about Sarah. So like, you know, Khatanu, uh, uh, listeners, I, I've, we've sinned by whole, staying on this for so many months. But, um, <laughs> but we found out about about Seraph in January, and we started diving in and finding all the issues we could that had Jewish content. And I literally found this issue and started going through it and discovering that it was about Masada on our bus ride to Masada. <laughs> I'm like, literally, like we woke up early, we stayed in Bedouin tents, we woke up early, and I'm like messaging you on WhatsApp and looking through the phone and like reading these passages and being like, oh my gosh, like I, we're doing that. The same, like it was just wild for me to encounter an issue of Jewish content. And that Jewish content was the same thing I was doing that very day. It was a really cool experience. That's incredible. What are the chances? Right? It's not like you go to Masada all the time. <laughs> right? Like literally, so it's 2023. I led a birthright trip. And before that, the last time I was in Israel was 2015. Uh -huh. Right? It's like I hadn't <laughs> been to Israel in eight years. And then on the trip that I'm back is when we discover this comic book about an Israeli superhero um, that they go to. It's, it was wild. So on page two, Chaim gives a brief review of Masada's history. He lets us know that it was built by Herod as a, quote, pleasure palace, um, which I can only assume it means it's a place where Chaim could lift up Rivka as many times as he wants. And Chaim then describes the Roman sacking of Jerusalem in the year 70, the destruction of the temple. Um, and that the last fighters resisting the Roman army um, resisted out of Masada. And they sort of laid up there and were, were living from in Masada until Flavia Silva uh, marched the 10th Roman legion in the siege of Masada, uh, breaching there, expecting to engage in combat, only to discover that 960 men, women, and children were all already dead, that they had all killed themselves. This being uh, a version of the story found in Josephus, once again, our uh, our Jewish historian of the Roman era. Um, Wendy, the American cousin, uh, refers to the fact that all the men, women, and children dead as being very much like Patrick Henry, because she has her very American perspective. But right, like, we have the story basically as Josephus puts it, as my tour guide said literally that day on Masada, and as much modern scholarship says, people are pretty suspect of how accurate Josephus, Josephus is, yeah. especially around this story. I think Josephus ends up like literally giving the speech uh, that they gave at Masada and encouraged everyone to take their own lives, which obviously, how could you have that if they all killed themselves? So yeah. like, I think what I was told is, uh, whenever you hear a number from Josephus, you should probably take at least one zero away from it. Maybe <laughs> if it's 960 people, like maybe 96 people died. Right. Um, right. But like he, he, he's known to exaggerate. There's a lot of uncertainty as to whether or not it's accurate, but 
that is certainly the story and Chaim is telling the story. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, I yeah, learned the same thing many times. <laughs> yeah. It might have might or not been accurate, yeah. Yeah, and look, Masad is like, it can be a really difficult place. I think for some people, it's this spot of like self-determination and and sort of like Kiddush Hashem in a way and like taking your life into your own hands and refusing to, to die at the enemy's hands and then others view it as like but it's a mass suicide and it's so difficult anyway so so like masala can be a, a difficult topic for people but they're there and on page three as Chaim's just looking around at the well-preserved roman camps um suddenly they are a little too well-preserved and they come to life like he's having some sort of illusion um and what ends up happening is literally like the Roman siege is reappearing and happening in real time. And on page five, Seraph confronts the ghost of Flavius Silva, the Roman soldier, who, you know, says like we they had captured all of Judea except for Masada. Masada was the one piece they still needed to conquer. And that tomorrow within the comic is the anniversary of the breach of Masada. What are the chances? What are the chances? <laughs> oh, you think that? Is rare odds, Henry. <laughs> Tomorrow, 960 American tourists will be present. The exact number of dead found there. Oh, uh, again, according to Josephus. And so right. the plan is like, I guess Flavia Silva's ghost plan is like, ah, an opportunity for me to kill 960 right. Jews instead Flavia of them Silva's killing ghost themselves. Plan. Yeah. Uh, comics sometimes, uh. right? Like things you never thought you would say. Um, so they get into a fight on page seven. Seraph is attacking with all the strength of Samson and Flavia Silva asks for compassion. Seraph yields. We're so proud of our boy. Yeah. He he's learned grown. something. <laughs> he learned he's grown since the day of atonement. He know he doesn't want to lose his powers again, but Silva was, was trying to lure Seraph into ease. Mm. And then he strikes with lightning. He's playing possum a little bit. He's playing possum. And uh, it basically kills Seraph. Like Seraph, appears to be dead but moses's staff is not dead moses's staff <laughs> starts to give a little wriggle because we all know what moses's staff loves to do what's it love to do henry turn into snakes it loves to turn into snakes <laughs> or as this comic tells us on page eight it loves to turn into the serpent of eternal death <laughs> sounds awesome yeah <laughs> i don't know what that is it's possible that the serpent of eternal death is just a really, you know, like heavy metal band <laughs> name for the Garden of Eden, a snake, the snake in the Garden of Eden. It's possible that it's just a reference for Moses' staff, as described when confronting Pharaoh and Pharaoh's magicians, turning into a snake. And it could be a reference to the the burning serpents in the Book of Numbers. There's like an episode that's sort of alluded to of these snakes attacking uh the people so but it's probably just the snake from exodus right i mean yes i would assume so since it's hit moses's staff since they've said he's hitting hitting us over the head with it that it's moses's staff (laughs) i'm assuming it has to be the serpent of eternal death because he's already a ghost so then it's like no 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 this is death for real this is eternal (laughs) death Anyway, the snake bites Flavius Silva's ghost. The ghost dies. Seraph comes back to life. Uh, he claims that he came back to life because of the mantle of Elijah, because we got to end with one last Tanakh reference. <laughs> what is Seraph's explanation, Henry, on page eight of why he came back to life? 
After all, if Elijah, by the Lord's power, restored life to a widow's dead son, surely he'd do the same for the one who inherited his clothes. What? I like to imagine. I like to imagine that <laughs> Wendy and Rivka are both like, "Who said anything about a widow's dead son? What are you <laughs> what? talking about?" Like, Ryan? where did Bob Oxner even come up with that dialogue? <laughs> yeah, it's I, I don't know, but. Uh, if any of you listening are wondering, this is a reference to First Kings seventeen twenty two, in which indeed a uh, widow has a son who has died, and Elijah uh, resurrects this kid. And so Chaim seems to think that the mantle, whoever it gets passed down to, can also be resurrected. I, I don't know. It's really weird logic. Like clearly it worked once. Why wouldn't it work again? I guess so. Chaim then jokes that he'll. Be able to tell the story of Masada as though he lived it himself. <laughs> Great. That's the end of the issue. <laughs> you can really tell the difference between the Jewish content in an E. Nelson Bridwell penned Seraph story and a Bob Oxner one. Like Bob's yeah. just like he's trying his best, but I'm really I'm not feeling it so much. Yeah, he like he sort of has got the obscure biblical references, but some of them are sort of like. Well, why? You know, <laughs> it's it's not it doesn't flow quite as well as you e. e. Nelson Bridwell or seem to make sense as well. Yeah, like what do you think came first? Do you think he came up with cool things that Seraph could do and then was like, I need to find a biblical connection for it? Or was he like talking to E. Nelson and being like, uh, tell me cool things that happen in the Bible. Like what cool miracles are there? And then he's like, well, Joshua once like prayed for time. So, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll include that. Right. Like, I think I, I have a feeling it was the first one. I think E. Nelson Bridwell sort of served as that guy in the office from what I understand that like when they were all, when the guys were all writing in those days um, and they needed a reference to something, they would ask him. That's, that's the sense I get. Right. You know, yeah, for, 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 com- for DC continuity also. Right. 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 It's like, Hey, so. you know, whatever they called E Nelson. Hey, yo, E. <laughs> right. <laughs> what, right. Right. <laughs> what's a good power for Sarah? Uh, that's that'll, you know, for this particular situation. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. Um, by the way, um, lest we receive a message from someone, um, I know that we have said multiple times like it feels very Christian, but I guess uh, we should point out that Bob Oxner actually was Jewish. Um, so this is a Jewish author, but it's just a Jewish author who doesn't seem to have a strong grasp on like like he's either really writing for a Christian audience in his approach. Or he does not have much of a strong grasp of like Jewish religious practice outside of Tanakh. Yeah, and I mean, and we've talked about that kind of thing going way back to our you know early episodes about writer Jewish writers who write like that. So, Absolutely, so, nothing new. <laughs> All right, our last main issue that we're looking at today, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. We're leaving the DC animated universe behind. Yeah. So I'm really glad you pointed that out because going back to last episode, I was thinking, you know, how you kept talking. We, we made a couple like conundrums and you sort of explained it that this is in the cartoon continuity, the, the Super Friends continuity, whatever. 
And I was thinking, I didn't say it last time because I didn't want to spoil what we were going to be covering. But now we're in actual DC Comics pre-crisis continuity because we're looking at DC Comics Presents, which was a series with current DC heroes teaming up basically often. And so uh, it was usually DC Comics Presents was usually a Superman team up book. So we're in the real like DC universe now that he's Seraph is real. He's a real boy. <laughs> so we're looking at DC Comics Presents number 46, June 1982, The Wizard Who Wouldn't Stay Dead, written by E. Nelson Bridwell, penciled by Alex Saviak. Inked by Pablo Marcos, colored by Gene D'Angelo, lettered by John Costanza, and edited by Julius Schwartz. I assume that because E. Nelson had already had the history of working on this character in Super Friends, that's why he decided, like, hey, I'm going to pull him over into actual, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I guess Earth 2 is what it would be. This is Earth 1. This is, oh, this this is still Earth, Earth Pre-Crisis 1. Pre-Crisis is Earth 1. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Earth 2 were, the, were like the Golden Age heroes in Pre-Crisis. So Earth, I know it doesn't make sense, but so at a certain point, the 1940s heroes became part of Earth 2. And you know, Superman, Batman, Aquaman, Green Lantern, at a certain point in the 1950s, they meet their Earth 2 counterparts. And it's all those heroes like Superman and Batman and Robin and uh, but then some other ones like uh, Wildcat and Our Man and whatever. So this is still during that period of time where there's a where there's a multiverse. This is pre 1985 Crisis on Infinite Earths. All right. So as we dive in, basically there's a hodgepodge of random supervillains that are attempting to raise an evil sorcerer from the dead. That's the the superhero backdrop that we need to have. And this is a team up of Superman and the Global Guardians. Before we go any further, Henry, is there anything you want to add about the Global Guardians and who they are? Does it matter? No, just a international team of, you know, heroes representing different countries and cultures and uh, yes, the to a certain extent that ethnicities, you know, it's w- I don't I don't want Would say you say the UN of superhero teams sure. or the, the EU of superhero teams? Either one would be generous. Awesome. Oh, okay. <laughs> got it. Got it. Got it. This is a real I think uh, no, generation. I think the Global Gar- Guardians for to a certain generation of comic fan DC comic fans have a like a a nostalgia for. Like I think sure. people who grew up watching Super Friends and reading these Superman co- co- Super Friends comics, uh, you know, reading comics in the seventies and eighties, have a soft spot for the Golden Guardians. I not for me. <laughs> so because there's like Justice League International, which is the Justice League also on an international global scale. So yes, like, but the it, Justice is League it International JLI has more heavy hitters. Is that the deal? Or well, sort of. Except they, yeah, I mean, they have like Flash and Power Girl, but they also have like Crimson Fox and Rocket Red. Um, there's also, you know, that's a whole part. There, JLI is is there's all tied up with JLE Justice League Europe. So it's it's a different thing. The, the global the global guardians, I think the the they're like i would say more like the 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 un that there's like a a hero on the on a globe on the global guardians that represents a different country slash 
but it's also like culture and language and um a little bit of eth- ethnic stuff too so it like represents that whereas justice league international is just and justice league europe was just the justice league was working in europe for a while and right, right. did have a few more international heroes like i mentioned like crimson fox who was french and rocket red who was uh russian but it it's different Got it. Got it. It reminds me of when I was in high school history class. And for whatever reason, sometimes as we were learning about like World War One or World War Two, I would imagine each country not as a full nation with an army, but as a uh, superhero or supervillain character from that country. And just, right. It's like, I basically would imagine Colossus representing Russia and everything yeah. that Russia would do in World War One or Two. And it's like basically that, where it's like, if the country were distilled to one hero that represents them. And is, well, it's, I mean, yeah. the X-Men are a good example of that um, sentiment of trying to do that thing. Like that, I would say that would be like a successful version of that, of what the global sure. guardians are, are trying to do, but they, they just didn't have, they didn't have enough, a lot of, a ton of appearances. Like, I don't remember them. I, I don't, I don't know to what extent there are global guardian series is, and there's someone out there who's sure. much more knowledgeable than I am of that, but. Yeah. It, it'd be interesting to learn. Oh, what do you know? I'm seeing it. This is the first appearance of the Global Guardians. So I would also guess, <laughs> without knowing for sure, I would guess that E. Nelson Bridwell was like basically bringing some of that whole Super Friends challenge of the Super Friends worldwide nature of the Super Friends into Earth One anyway. And yeah. so we get the Global Guardians, which is a great excuse for Superman to travel around the world. And in each country he goes to, he meets the appropriate person, which is what brings us back into this issue as some of these villains that are trying to raise this wizard are attacking Israel. So when there's evil in Israel, who's Superman going to team with? His buddy, Chaim Levon, the Seraph. There's mysticism afoot also. So once again, Superman. I love these team-ups where Superman's basically like, yo, Seraph, you're my bro. You're super <laughs> strong like me. You can help. And also, I don't do so well with magic. Help right. me out here. Right, right. Or usually he needs like Batman to help him with magic or a magic person like Wonder right. Woman or Constantine or something. But here, he, there's one guy... <laughs> One guy, the Seraph, who on page four, um, the narration mentions Seraph's usual tools, his mantle of Elijah, his staff of Moses, his strength of Samson. What am I missing? You got them all. Perfect. They encounter Ashtoreth and Moloch, which are supervillains here, but listeners who are somewhat familiar with either Tanakh or uh, Jewish mythology may be like, oh, those are interesting. Indeed, Moloch is a foreign deity in the in the Tanakh. God often forbids the yeah. worship of Moloch. Yeah, the, the character of God in, in the Bible, in the Tanakh, hates Moloch. Like, yes, absolutely. One of his because top Moloch, supervillains. Like, top. 100%. Like, definitely. Don't like, worship Moloch. Do not. Greatest rivalries, God and Moloch. Do not yeah. worship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, Moloch is often associated with child sacrifice. And right. as we know from the binding of Isaac, the Akedah, um, as troubling as that story is, ultimately the message is like, never sacrifice your kid. Do we not don't do, do that it. anymore. And, yeah. Right? Like there are indications in other places in the Tanakh of child sacrifice happening. Um, right. right? Like arguably even the Da of Anabihu, um, Aaron's sons getting consumed by the strange alien fire might be a form of child sacrifice in a certain way. I hadn't thought about 
about sacrifice that. that was someone had had told me about. Uh, I think Mayor Shalev has a book called Rishonim, or maybe it's Rashit, Rashit. Um, but it's like all about first of the Tanakh, and so it's looking at sacrifices. Anyway, mm. that's a tangent. But the point being, Malach child sacrifice don't do it. And Ashtaroth is mentioned a few times throughout Nevi'im, either as this foreign goddess you're not supposed to worship, usually associated with Baal, um, or as like a collective term for inappropriate or illicit worship. Yeah, uh, Baal, Baal's so, the other one that God in the Torah doesn't yeah, like. God, God yeah, hates yeah, yeah. Baal. <laughs> right. So like, you know, Moach and Ashtaroth teaming up, it's like, this is god's greatest enemies teaming up it's like when lex luther and joker team up right right so solomon in king in first kings 11 5 also um solomon goes after ashtaroth so like there's some there's there's a lot of connections here on page five these supervillains reveal that they did intentionally name themselves after these deities and we see that moloch has a burning touch which we can only assume is a tribute to the fact that he would Burn children as part of human sacrifice. On page six, Ashtaroth uses a moon spell against Seraph, who responds with what I think is my favorite curse I've ever heard. Right? Like he's so thrown off that he responds, Joshua's shofar. <laughs> um, it's just like. I wonder if anyone ever said that again. Joshua's shofar? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you and I are going to bring it back. <laughs> making it happen. The moon spell ends up blinding Seraph, and he describes that he is as blind as Samson in slavery, uh, which is a reference to, we talked a little bit about the Samson story last time. Um, Samson is uh, an utter fool for Delilah, who the Philistines asked Delilah to get find out Samson's weakness. And even though Delilah like says multiple times, what's your weakness? What's your weakness? And Samson would like lie and come up with different ones. And then he'd be attacked in whatever way he'd said. So like, clearly he must've known Delilah was putting the words on one day. He finally tells her that his hair, right? Because of his Nazarite vow is the source of his strength. His hair is cut. The Philistines take him, they capture him, they blind him, and they turn him into a mill slave. Um, so we once again have a Tanakh reference. But I don't know, Sarah's saying he's as blind as Samson in slavery. It's a little clunky, but like it works better for me than than the Oxner ones did. It's also like it's a little uh, it's a little insensitive. I mean, they I think they like gouged Samson's eyes out or something. Like really they horrible. Really did. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It was pretty. Yeah, it was you're pretty not as blind as Samson, Seraph. Come on. <laughs> right, we're right. Yeah, fair point. Fair point. Seraph is maybe exaggerating a little. A little it's dramatic. Like his favorite, Seraph. like his favorite historian, Josephus. He right. Dramatic. <laughs> Wildly enough, that's it. Like, I mean, the issue goes on. There's the like Moloch and Ashtaroth get what they were looking for, but when it comes to Jewish content, like Zehu, that's the end of it. And they also get what's coming to them, which is well, eventually. I mean, I I, I assume eventually Superman and 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 Seraph are going to win. Yeah. yeah. What's weird about it is that like this issue is a two parter. I believe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, like yeah. But I don't think yet neither Ashtaroth nor Moloch appear again. Right. Like they're listed as this is their single and only appear. So like the, the big bad gets stopped, but these people never, like they literally never appear in a single other comic. Right. It's really weird. It's weird. Yeah. We don't need to go into the full details. That's basically the end of Sarah's appearances for a decade. Uh, we're going to talk just very quickly 
A decade later, in 1992, there's an issue of Justice League Quarterly number eight, which with a, it has multiple stories. One of them is the real return of the Global Guardians, who this is who Sarah's associated with now is the Global Guardians. Um, so in an issue written by Kevin Dooley. Yeah. Kevin Dooley, um, drawn by Andy Smith, and Smitty was the inker. Cool. We get just a very brief moment where Seraph is asked, like, why even bother being a hero? Um, and his answer is, you know, not necessarily explicitly Jewish, but but heavily suggested more than just implied. Um, he responds, you know, why is he a hero? My people, my religion. It's my duty to bring peace. But you're right. For all our powers, we cannot change the stupidity of hate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it it makes me wish that he had said Judaism instead of just my people, my religion. Right. But I like the fact that, like, if you know Seraph, you know his people and religion are Jewish. Right. So, like, right. Jewish duty to bring peace. I like it's that. It's close. Yeah. And then a couple pages later, he uses the staff once again and says, may the staff of Moses reveal all. Um, and Because that- a key component of his... Of Seraph's personality is listing his toys. Yeah, yeah. He's very proud of these things. He's very proud of these things. That is basically literally it. Obviously, the 1992 appearance means that was his appearance post crisis. Right. He appears a couple of the times with no Jewish content, and he's basically gone until like once the DC universe ends in 2011 and restarts with the new 52, there's no Seraph. There's no appearances. There's no mentions. He basically doesn't say. Also when the DC universe disappears the first time in 1985, when it he's never, he's not really mentioned other than well, other well, we than just talked about. Yeah. But I'm saying other than this, that's it. Like, right. We're right. He's very rarely, very rarely mentioned or used i mean he got replaced by rombon right he got he yeah. got uh, yeah. market corrected i guess is yeah. the term yeah until in 2018 in may in an issue of doomsday clock which was the highly anticipated but i think since it came out like more like, of oh. a bust than a success i would say it came out like it took like three years for the, the whole thing to come out it took forever Right, people got exhausted by the art delays. But Doomsday Clock was a massive DC crossover that was essentially a sort of sequel to Watchmen because it was a, it was yeah. the crossover of DC it, superheroes and Watchmen characters. I, yeah, I I think they wanted it to be that, but it ended up being not a crossover and more its its own thing. It was a like sort of a limited series maxi series. It it yeah, it, I, it yeah. As someone who only occasionally reads DC, I enjoyed it. I thought that there were some fun characters in it. But similar to Watchmen, uh, it was written by Jeff Johns. And Jeff Johns, as an ode to Watchmen, would bring really intense back material to every comic. Meaning, after every issue, there would be... You know, like newspaper clippings or or website copy about things that had happened in the world, providing greater context of what's going on, and so, like some DC universe deep cuts, basically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, in issue number five, there's a list showing like a map of the globe and showing metahumans around the world because there's a lot of concern over uh, uh, the metahumans in in the U.S. specifically. And so it lists that one of the groups of metahumans that are known are the Chayot in Israel. We know the Chayot. These are Ramban and Judith and Golem. Right. Um, 
right? Like all of these characters that we came to really love in our Rambon episode, uh, coming out of Suicide Squad and then um, Ostrander Spectre series, right? So it lists the Coyote as we know them, but there's now one more member, and that member is Seraph. Seraph is actually listed as the leader of the Coyote, which like, boy, if ever there was a line of text at the back of an issue that I was desperate to actually see the, the, the issue written out. Like I'd love to like, yes, I want Seraph and Ramban interacting. Yes. I want I to know. see that group. And I, I actually, have, I have to take it back. There's not just one new member. There's a second new member. It also includes Pterodon who apparently is an Israeli soldier that was transformed into a human pterodactyl yeah. in new team <laughs> Titans volume two, number 24. I don't think there's any Jewish content, but I love that concept. Why is there an Israeli turned into a pterodactyl? And they even give Jeff Johns even gives Seraph a little like a uh, character bio in here. Yeah. At the end of it, and he says Seraph is the controversial Israeli metahuman known as Seraph claims to wield the staff of Moses, the mantle. I'm not going to read that. But why does he say controversial? Like, it's not like he's Sabra or something. He's just quoting the Bible all the time. Yeah. I mean, I would assume that I don't, it's been a while since I've read Doomsday Clock. Uh, like, weren't metahumans in general just like, sort of controversial? Yes. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Does it say anything about any of the yeah. others? But they're but they're referring to him as they're saying okay, so I'll just read it fine. After he lists all the, all his toys. Leader of the metahuman group Coyote, Seraph has kept the true number of his teammates a secret. It is rumored that the three most powerful metahumans on the planet are members of Coyote. However, there is speculation that this is a little more than propaganda created by the Israeli government. So maybe that's why he's controversial. Right. I was going to say both of those sound like something the Israeli government might do. Right. It's Dibbuk, Golem, Judith, Pterodon, and Ramban, and Seraph. So, you know, somewhere out there in the multiverse, it's just waiting to be written. There is something with Seraph and Ramban interacting, much like I wished for in the last episode. Greg Rucka, if you're listening, please write, please write this. Even it's just been a while since we've mentioned him. Yeah. Well, I can't think of anyone else I would trust to be able to do it well, you know? Right. Bendis would write a silly version of it. But is yes. it, is, yeah, yeah. Well, Bendis would be good for like the dialogue of the two of them, like on right. whatever ship they're going to, you know, flying to their mission, like having funny banter or something. But yeah. yeah. Anyway. Well, anyway, Henry, um, <laughs> that is the end of Seraph. So as we always do, like what any final closing thoughts on Seraph as a character? It had a great high of like one of the greatest things I've ever seen to not necessarily a low, but just uh okay. You know, it was kind of uh it sort of left me a little uh unfulfilled at the end because it just doesn't seem complete. Like, I don't know, there should be more appearances of this this guy also i think while i appreciate the accuracy to which the biblical references were created i think having a character whose only jewish references are biblical references are is it's a little lacking there's like more to a jew than just referencing the bible i mean most jews wouldn't even be able to do that so Right. The, yeah. There's there's good reason that the issue we loved most, Super Friends 38, um, 
did involve more than just the Bible, right? It involved right. God's praying. voice. That's it involved yeah. Yom Kippur. It involved yeah. um, uh, a talis and a kippah. And it, it involves a lot of visual and ritual markers of Judaism. Um, it felt richer for it, not just, I think, because you and I have more of a love for those aspects of Judaism, um, but it just felt like there was, he was part of a richer tapestry of Jewish life in that issue, right. whereas the fact that he just kind of hits biblical references over and over in most other stories, it falls a little flat, right? It's like, right. What is the formula to a seraph story? Something involving the development of Israel and seraph being there, and then a bunch of biblical references. And like, wash, rinse, rinse repeats, wash, rinse, right. repeats. Right. And so that just kind of was unfulfilling versus the very vibrant issue number 38. And I think I agree with you that overall, most of the issues were fairly meh, but number 38 is probably going to be a new highlight that I use when I talk to people about this podcast, when I uh -huh. tell people, can you believe that this exists within the panels of a comic book? Yeah. One of the, the aspects I'm going to lean on to share with people is going to be in like 1980. There is an incredible depiction of, of Kol Nidre and Yom Kippur. That's like really early for everything else we have found. Like it, that's, what's amazing is that it's not just such a, beautiful depiction of Judaism, but it's such an early depiction within the timeline we've discovered of Jewish content in, in comic books. I wish we could see more of him. Me too. It's probably not going to happen, but... Well, that's another character in the podcast books. We'll be hopefully coming at you soon. We've got a few more that we're looking at that we're excited about. Um, but until next time, I'm Brandon Bernstein. I'm Henry Bernstein. No, no relation. relation. Thanks for listening. You can follow us at Jewish Comics Pod on Facebook and Twitter, or you can email us at jewishcomicspodcast at gmail.com. Please don't forget to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can hit the subscribe button if you haven't already.